The following episode of Fuller Brown is for mature audiences only. Listener discretion is advised. Full of Brown. Hello, everybody. This is Tony with Fuller Brown, and I am here with a good friend, Tim Lodgen. Uh, he has an incredible story, and I cannot wait for you guys to to hear it. But I, um, before we get started, I want to say thank you for everybody that's been listening. Thank you for everybody that's been contacting, writing to the website, giving us suggestions. I do highly, highly appreciate all of that. You don't know how much I do. Thank you for listening. Thank you for giving us the reviews. But today, like I said, we have a great guest, Mr. Tim Lodgen. Thank you for being on the show, man. Oh, Tony, thank you so much, man. I am truly appreciate you having me. I mean, I look forward to our conversation. No, I've been looking forward for this because we planned this like a couple weeks ago. And this is one that I was really, really excited about. And and this is one of those stories that I've been wanting to share with our audience. And I feel like you were the perfect, perfect fit. So uh, I, I before we start, you know, I say just thank you for your time and thank you for, for sharing your story, man. Oh, you're, you're so welcome. Man. I'm so blessed and, and grateful to be able to do these podcast and share my story so yeah yeah no no thank you so uh mr lodgen am i saying that right lodgen yeah actually yes you are yep okay kudos to me okay <laughs> <laughs> okay so before we get started how about you tell everybody a little bit about yourself you know just a glimpse of who you are um i'm i'm 46 years old born and raised in baltimore maryland um i grew up primarily just with my mother my uh my father left my mom when i was the age of six Mm. Uh, I, I I do have an older brother who's ten years older than me. Okay. And and during my life, I I, I did blame myself for my father leaving at such a young age. I, I always thought I was the reason that they got a divorce because why would he stick around till my brother was sixteen, almost seventeen, but he left me when I was only six years old. Mm. And 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 I used that guilt and that. That, that burden upon myself to justify the reason, the reason to use drugs and alcohol. Yeah. Yeah. For people so, that don't know, we're going to talk today about uh, the severity and the complications of somebody that has been through alcohol and drug abuse, uh, you know, and then not only that, but the, the uh, healing part of, of, you know, going through that. So you said that you kind of felt like that had a big part of it. Is that correct? Yes, I did. You know, and, and I held on to that for an extremely long time. Mm-hmm. Um, I, we didn't have a good relationship, me and my father. You know, growing up when he left, uh, my mom would come down and be like, "Your dad's coming to pick you up. Pack your bags. You're going for him for the weekend." And I'd be like, "Okay." I go pack my bags, and I'd sit at the front door, and an hour would go by, two hours go by, um... and the phone would ring, and and he would be like, ah, "I'm sorry, I can't pick you up. I got to work, or something came up." And I cannot tell you how many times that that happened. It got to the point where when my mom said my father was coming to pick me up, I wouldn't even pack my bags anymore because I knew within an hour or two, the phone was going to ring and he was going to cancel on me. Yeah. So I really thought my dad didn't love me. He wanted nothing to do with me. And what was wrong with me? You know, why didn't my dad want anything to do with me? Yeah. Now, now on the other hand, my mom, 
stepped up to the plate times 10. I mean, she, she had three jobs when I grew up. She put herself through college, got her master's degree, mm. and ultimately, ultimately became a vice president of a big company and made a lot of money. And she took very, very good care of me. Wow. Um, by, by this time, my brother had moved moved out and joined the army and was doing his own thing. Yeah. Like I said, he's 10 years older than me. So, but my mom did a hell of a job raising me and did everything she could to make sure that I, I didn't miss my, that father side of my life, mm-hmm. but I didn't have that connection with, with an adult male. My, my mom did marry and I had a stepdad, but there was that stepdad stepson kind of relationship. Mm, you know, so it's kind of awkward there, a bit. Yeah, he wasn't open. Like he never said he loved me. He never called me son. He did show me things. I mean, he showed me how to fish and how to how to water ski and snow ski and how to build houses and yeah. stuff like that. But there was no emotional connection with with this man. Gotcha. And and um, I'm truly grateful for what he did show me. But I did lack that compassion as a young boy with with my dad yeah yeah for sure yeah so did you because i know you said that you got ready a couple of times and he you know just didn't show up is there a time that he did show up he did you know he would um it would be i would see him once a month once every five six weeks when it it, when it was supposed to be every other weekend Mm. that him and my mom worked it out so i would go a month sometimes a month and a half without seeing my father and he did kind of have a good excuse. He was a police officer. So he would just call and say he had to work overtime. And mm. me being a kid, I'm like, oh, my dad's my dad's a police officer. He's got to work overtime. Until it really started to set in that does he really have to work overtime again and again and again? Yeah. When I got into my 30s, late early 40s, and I told my mom I've been holding on to this for so long. And it was one of the reasons why I drank and drugged. She said, Tim, I, I, I wish you would have came to me sooner about this. She's like, I can't believe you've been holding on to this for so long. She said, your father was running around on me with other women. That's why we got a divorce. It had nothing to do with you. Your dad loves you. He was just a selfish asshole and only cared about himself. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, it, I mean, at that age, though, it, it, it's hard to, you know, make the difference of what what is what, you know? It is. And when you're growing up, when you're a young boy and you're trying to become a young man into a man, you need that father figure that you're growing up with to kind of look at and kind of emulate to see, you know, work habits, how to take how you treat your wife, how you treat your kids, Mm -hmm. how you how you hold yourself as as a a boy and turning into a man, how you respect others. And, And I missed that. I didn't know my father's heritage i didn't know his his father his father i didn't know my grandfather my great-grandfather i grew up with step-granddads my father didn't even know his real father so i was really lost okay not knowing my family heritage and exactly where i came from i didn't find out any of that until these past two three years about my true family heritage oh wow okay like like lodging is not really my family's na- last name what do you mean so, so in world war ii my grandmother had gotten pregnant with a, my, my my father's family's from germany okay my father didn't come into the united states until he was 18 years old so okay. he spoke nothing but german my whole family's from germany my my father's side 
my grandmother got pregnant in World War II and didn't like the man who got her pregnant. So she asked a U.S. soldier whose last name was Lodgen if she could name my father and use his last name as his name. What? So, so that's how I actually got my last name, Lodge. My family's name, my father's real name, my father's grandfather is Salter, which is German. Lodgen, I have no idea where what ethnicity or what, what background that came from. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but my true family's last name is Salter. And I've been able to look up my family history through that. And come to find out, my great-grandfather was an inventor in the early 1900s, late 1800s. He was a millionaire, and um, he owned a bunch of different shops and businesses in Germany. And I'm just still learning about that. Let me tell you how much that has helped me, because it filled a void in me that I was like, what? am I supposed to be? What am I supposed to father? You know, um, what kind of bloodline do I have? Mm -hmm. I always thought I was more than what I was, or I could contribute more to society than what I did. When I found out my grandfather was a personally made millionaire, the drive that, that it gave me to continue to pursue talking on podcasts and sharing my story and and trying to help others who are in, in who are hopeless, who yeah. believe that they're alone and their pain is alone, has driven me even more because now I really, I really truly feel like I have my purpose now is to share my story with as many people as possible in hopes that one day they'll know that they're not alone. They can get help and they can truly live the life that they've always wanted to live. Yeah. And you know, I, First of all, I applaud you because this is something that is very, very hard to do, not only to admit when you have a problem, but to to get the help required and to actually, you know, keep focus. You know, it's it's it takes a toll because I've had, a you know, a couple of close friends that, you know, I, I've seen it kind of firsthand of how. Um, it can affect you and not, not, not just you, but the people around you, you know? Uh, so let's go back a little bit. Um, when was the first time, uh, cause you said you did alcohol and drugs. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. When was the first time you tried either of those? How old were you? Okay. So, um, most of my life I was an athlete. I, I, I played all kinds of sports. I was a all-star pitcher, played baseball, um, football. I was an all-star running back. I was a Golden Glove boxer, a junior Olympic boxer. I was almost a professional skateboarder at one time in my life. What? So okay. I was, I was, I was. I grew up with um, Brandon Novak from Jackass and Viva La Bam, and Bucky Lassick, who's mm. uh, one of the best professional skateboarders out there. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. I grew, up, I, I grew up with them here in Baltimore. We all skated together. So I grew up as an athlete. Never wanted to do drugs or alcohol. It just wasn't in my thought process. Yeah, yeah. Ninth grade, we had a welcome to high school freshman year party, okay. and a friend of mine had a party, and he got a bunch of beer. So I was like, you know what? I've never had beer before. Let me try it. And I ended up drinking, I don't know, five or six beers, and I ended up getting so sick, throwing up. I had the hangover the next day, the whole deal, and I was like, I'm never drinking again. Never again. Like that just wasn't for me. Yeah. So the rest of ninth grade, 10th, 11th, 
I didn't do anything. No drugs, no alcohol, nothing. 11th grade, summer before uh, senior year started, I signed up for the Marine Corps. So I knew as soon as I graduated high school, the week after I graduated, I was going to boot camp. Mm. So I was like, you know what? I'm going to go to some parties and have some fun, get it out of my system. And, uh, you know, because next year, shit's going to hit the fan. I'm going in the military. Let me, let me right. have some fun. Yeah. So I started going to parties and drinking. And once I started drinking, there was marijuana around. So I was like, you know what? I'll try some of that. So I started smoking pot. There was a lot of LSD around, so I started tripping, taking LSD, um, eating mushrooms. There was PCP around. I started smoking some PCP whenever that was around. Um, every once in a while, I'd take pain pills. So pretty much once I got the alcohol to my lips and it was in my system, mm -hmm. whatever, whatever was at the party, I was like, sure, man, I'll try it. Next year, I'm going in the military. I'm, this is just a phase for me. Let me get it out of my system. Yeah. So that my whole senior year of high school, I drank and drugged as much as I, I possibly could because I just figured I was getting it out of my system. Mm -hmm. Now, once I graduated and I went into the military, the drugs did stop 100%. No drugs. It completely stopped. Okay. But, but once I graduated boot camp and got stationed in North Carolina, Camp Lejeune, when we got off at four o'clock in the afternoon, we would go right to the bars, right to the strip clubs and start drinking. And the motto around the military bases are, if you're old enough to take a bullet for this country, you're old enough to have a cold beer. Mm -hmm. So at 18, 19 and 20 years old, they didn't not get serve us. They would serve us. Their only rule was you couldn't stand there holding the alcohol in your hand in case the authorities walked in. You had to drink it and sit it back down at a table mm. and act and kind of act like it wasn't yours. But they would serve you all night long. Yeah. And, and as 18, 19, 20-year-old young men in the military, we are seeing our sergeants at these same bars. So guys that are late 20s, early 30s, training us and being our mentors. And they would just say, Make sure you're up at four o'clock at formation, ready to go. They didn't t try to deter us from drinking. It was almost as if it was expected of us to train hard and party hard and and, and keep going no mm. matter what. Okay. So it, it was no no type of deter there at all. Mm -hmm. That that's fascinating. Uh, so from that point until down the line when did you realize that it was a problem so um when i once i got out of the marines um i was 21 and as soon as i got out that first month was like a, was was a relief i was like i'm out of the military i i can i don't have to shave every day i don't have to wear a uniform i can sleep in yeah it was it was kind of like a uh, just a relaxing month the second month hit me and I was like, oh, my God, I, I got to get a job. I got to start paying some rent. I'm, I'm at my mom's house. I'm going to have to start helping her out. I got to get a vehicle. The third month I was home from being discharged, I got severely depressed. Um, I stopped showering. I stopped shaving. I didn't want to leave my bedroom. I was drinking as heavy as I was in the Marine Corps. And I started smoking pot again because now I'm not being drug tested. Mm. And, and I got severely depressed. I found myself one day sitting in my bedroom. I went into my stepfather's armoire and I grabbed his gun and I sat it on my lap and I contemplated using it because I was lost. 
Yeah. I didn't know now what I was going to do with my life. I'm out of the military. Um, I served six months in Somalia where I saw a bunch of stuff that affects you for the rest of your life. I'll just say that. Yeah, I'm and sure. I was, I was extremely lost. Luckily, I had a girlfriend at the time, and I called her and said, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm sitting here. I got a gun on my lap. I don't know what I'm doing. She came over. She took it from me. I told my mother that night that I was extremely depressed. I did not tell her that I, I just had my stepfather's gun in my lap because she would have had me committed. She would have freaked out. So I yeah. didn't tell her that, but I told her I was severely depressed. So she got me some appointments with some doctors, got in to start seeing some doctors, and they diagnosed and confirmed that I had bipolar one disorder, manic depressant. Mm. So they started to put me on the medicines for the manic depressant bipolar disorder. Now, one thing I want to say is if, if you are diagnosed with any type of mental illness or health issue, please be honest with your doctors. I was not honest with them tell, but I because I did not tell them that I was drinking and smoking pot. So the medicines that they were giving me were, were not working whatsoever mm -hmm. because of the alcohol and the drugs in my system. So this went on my entire life from 21 up until this, until I got sober at 44, that the medicines would never work. I would take them for a couple months. I'd stop taking them. They put me back on them. The, they'd up the dosages. Okay, those didn't work. Let's try these. These didn't work. Let's try those. And they were com continuously giving me different cocktails and medicines. And I got to the point where I just said, you know what? I'm not taking any more medicine. This shit doesn't work. And it's all due to the fact that I had drugs and alcohol in my system. Did you connect the dots then or did you connect the dots later? I didn't really connect any dots until I got into rehab at the age of 44. I just thought I was really messed up in the head. Mm. I really did. I, I thought I was going crazy. I thought there was something extremely wrong with me. Maybe they, get di they uh, diagnosed me wrong. Maybe I had schizophrenia or multiple personalities. Maybe there was something else going on Yeah. because the medicines never worked, and I couldn't really seem to put my finger on why. Okay. But uh, through my 20s into my 30s, I was drinking every single day, and it started off with a six-pack a day. Then ultimately, that wasn't enough. It went to a 12-pack a day. And sometimes the 12 pack a day wasn't enough. I'd go get another six. Sometimes I'd be drinking 18 beers a day. When I got into my 30s, um, I was 33 years old. I had lost a job. Now, I'll tell you this, but since being out of the out of the Marines at the age of 21, I'm now 46 years old. I've had 46 employments wow. in 25 in 25 years. And that all stems from my mental illness and addiction. How many and did I, you say? I'm sorry. For, I've had 46 jobs since the age of 21. Wow. Okay. And I would stay there for three, four months, sometimes six months. And then I just quit or I would lose interest and just not go anymore and then go look for another job. Yeah. At the age of 33, I lost my job and uh, my wife's like, what's, what's going on? Like, why can't you keep a job? You know, we have, we have two girls now. I had, I had my first, second daughter. She said, we need to figure this out. And I was like, I just need some time. I was like, I, you know, I, I miss sports. I miss competing. I miss doing stuff like that. And she goes, well, what do you want to do? And this was about six years after mixed martial arts had really started to take off. And the UFC was big. And I said, I, I want to go fight again. I miss fighting. And she said, well, I'll give you a year. 
if you can get training and get some fights and start making some money and that's what you want to do, I'll, I'll let you do it. So okay. I started training mixed martial arts. I started getting fights. I started fighting on TV, started fighting in Atlantic City, and like Harris Casino and um, down here in Baltimore. I wasn't making a lot of money. I was making like $1,500 a fight, but it was it was helping me to feel better about myself because I was competing and, and I was in shape and my self-esteem had gotten up. I was still drinking and smoking pot. Oh, okay. Okay. So that never stopped, but, um, I didn't let it stop me training and I, and I didn't let it stop me from passing the drug test. I would yeah. find my way around those. Now at the age of 35, my last fight, I torn my rotator cuff in three places. Uh. And, uh, I get out of the locker room and I'm, I'm walking out. My friends and family there and my wife comes up and she gives me a hug. And she notices that I'm holding my beer in my left hand when usually I hold it in my right. Mm. And she's like, she's like, how come you're holding it with your left hand? I was like, I can't move my arm. And she says, what do you mean? I said, I did something to it. I can't lift it above my, 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 my chest. Yeah. And she's like, okay. She's like, well, you're done. She's like, you did it for three years. She's like, you're 35. She's like, you got to go to the doctors and see what's happening. So I made an appointment to go to the doctors, and they confirmed I tore my rotator cuff. I had to have major surgery on my rotator cuff. And that started the next four years of a really bad pain pill addiction. They started giving me pain pills, and throughout this process of the next four years, I had to have two neck surgeries that that stemmed from training. I had to have two hernia operations, and I had to have a major reconstructive surgery on my right arm where I tore all the ligaments and tendons in my arm. Mm. So, so over the next four years, I had these major surgeries, and the and the pain pills just kept coming and coming and coming. Now, on top of this, I was drinking a twelve pack a day. So I was not only taking 8 to 10, 20 milligram Oxycontins a day, but I was drinking a 12-pack of beer every single day. Mm. It got to a point where I got scared. I, I remember sitting on my bed and thinking, oh, my God, this is how people die when they go to sleep. Taking all this pain medicine and drinking this alcohol, my, my body's going to shut down while I'm sleeping and I'm not going to wake up. Yeah. And I told myself, that's not going to happen. Um, if, if I'm going to die an addict, I'm going to do it myself. And I reached over off of my dresser and I grabbed my, my pain pills and I had 18 of them left. And I took all 18 and I drank a 12 pack of beer in like two and a half, three hours. And uh, I remember laying on the bed and asking God, please don't let me wake me up because uh, I want the, I want this pain to stop. I can't stop taking these pain pills and I can't stop drinking. I just want the pain to stop. And I woke up the next day. Mm. Um, I go into the bathroom where my refill was sitting on the counter and I opened up the bottle and I dumped all 30 of them down the toilet. And I remember looking in the mirror and saying, I'm never taking a pain pill again. And for the next 10 days, I was extremely sick. I mean, the probably the sickest I've ever been in my entire life. But every morning when I woke up, I would look in the mirror in between crying and throwing up and using the bathroom. And I, and I would say to myself, remember this feeling. Remember how this feels because you don't want to feel like this again. You're never taking pain medicine again. And I was able to stop the pain medicine. 
it's coming up on uh, it'll be ten years this year that I've taken any pain medicine. Wow! So I was able to stop that by myself, but when I stopped taking the pain medicine, you know, it's been four years. I'm used to smoking pot, taking pain medicine, and drinking. So now yeah. there's no more pain medicine. So now I'm like, man, I'm missing something because I'm used to that feeling. Yeah. So I'm, I'm at home one day and I'm like, you know, I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna jump in my truck and go take a ride because I'm really lost. I don't know what my purpose is in life. I don't know why I'm here. I don't know why I can't stop drinking, and um, you know how, why why I've lost so many jobs. I'm just really looking for an answer on why am I still here. And I get in my truck and I go and drive down to this park that. Everybody goes and takes picnics and walks their dogs and, and goes fishing. It's a really beautiful park. And I'm driving through the park and I'm crying. And I'm looking up at the sky and I'm, I'm hitting my steering wheel. And I'm like, why am I here? Why? Just please give me a sign that I'm here because I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know why I'm here. You know, what, what's my path in life? What am I supposed to be doing? And I get around to this tree where my senior year of high school, my best friend lost control of his car and hit the tree and lost his life at the age of 18. Mm. And on this tree is a picture of him. And there's a book and you can put flowers on the tree. And it's still there to this day from 1996. And I get out and I go up to the tree and I'm crying. And I'm like, Bill, I'm like, man, I don't know what I'm doing. I can't stop drinking. I'm lost. You know, me and my me and my, my wife aren't getting along. What's what? What am I here for? Can you please? send me some type of sign that I'm not alone, that there's a reason I'm here, that there's something else out there, that something's watching over me. I just need a sign. And I get back in my truck and I go to leave the park. And as I go to leave the park, instead of parking on the right-hand side as I'm driving out, I pull over on to the left-hand side on oncoming traffic. And I park and I'm crying. And 10 minutes goes by. And this car pulls up, and we're nose to nose now, we're hood to hood. And this man gets out of his truck, and he opens the back door and grabs his dog, and he's about to go walk over where the water is to walk his dog. And I'm looking at this man, and I'm like, man, he looks familiar. And then all of a sudden, it dawned on me. It was my best friend who died in 1996. It was his father. (gasps) I hadn't seen him since 1996. This is March 16th, 2017. 21 years later. I get out of of my truck and I look at him. I say, Mr. Bill. And he looks at me. He's like, Timmy. And I start crying. And I fall to the curb. And he walks over to me. And he puts his hand on my shoulder. And he says, Tim, I'm not supposed to be here this morning. My wife came to me in a dream last night and told me to come walk the dog this morning at 10 a.m. I'm supposed to be in Myrtle Beach in a family reunion. I was supposed to leave at 6.30 this morning. I'm here because I truly believe I was sent to see you this morning. And I said, Mr. Bill, I just stopped at Billy's tree and asked him to give me a sign that I wasn't alone. And we sat there and we talked and we hugged for 15 minutes. And as I was leaving, I had this sense of relief that everything was going to be okay, that I was being watched. But my addictive personality took that as, well, I don't have to stop drinking because I'm being watched now. Mm. 
and nothing is going to happen to me. So I can continue to live the life the way I have because I'm being watched and protected. So like you, so, I'll, like I'll be fine. I'll be fine. So for the next four years, I drank the most I've ever drank. The, the beer wasn't doing it anymore because now I'm missing that pain medicine. So I switched to fireball whiskey. And it started off with just getting four or five miniatures in the morning and then still drinking my six to 12 pack. And that seemed to hold me over. And then I was just like, you know what? Why am I even drinking beer? I'll just get straight whiskey and drink that during the day. Mm -hmm. So, I, I, again, instead of getting a big bottle, my addictive and, and mental illness told me, get the small miniatures because you can drink them and throw them away and not be aware of how much alcohol you're actually drinking. Uh -huh. So I would get a, a, a sleeve of fireball whiskey, which is a 10 pack still in plastic. And I would drink all 10 of them before one o'clock in the afternoon. And then as soon as work was over at three 30, I would stop right back at the liquor store and get 10 more and drink all 10 of them before eight o'clock at night. That went on for the next year and a half. I finally gotten a brand new truck and I, I drive to the liquor store to get my 10 pack of uh, fireball. And on the way home, I hit something. I still, to this day, do not know what I hit. I don't know if it was a parked car, a sign, something on the side of the street, but I hit something. Mm -hmm. And I and I get home and I tell my wife, I'm going to bed. I just hit something and I go to sleep. The next morning, I wake up like every good alcoholic and I say, good morning. I'm, I'm going to go get some water and some milk. And my wife says, how are you going to do that? And I said, in my truck. She said, Tim, go look at your truck in the driveway. And I go out to my driveway and I look and the right front passenger tire is hanging off the rim. My side mirror is completely off the truck, gone. And I'm looking at my truck and she pops her head out and she says, you have no idea what you hit last night, do you? And I said, I, I have no remember. No, I don't remember. And she says, Tim. You could have killed yourself. You could have killed somebody else. You can't stay here anymore. You have to go leave and figure this out. But I, I don't want you here anymore. You, I, you can't be here. So I call AAA. They come. They put my spare tire on. And I call my buddy. I'm like, hey, uh, wife just kicked me out, man. Is there any way I can come to your house for a couple of days? You know, let things blow over. Mm. And in a couple in a couple of days, she'll let me back in. Like, she always, always forgives me. You know, she'll let me back in. So I get to my buddy's house and um, we're talking and he's like, well, um, you know, your wife kicked you out, man. We got nothing else to do the rest of the day. We might as well go to the bar. And I'm like, you know what? That's a great idea because my wife just kicked me out. Now I have a reason to drink because, you know, mm. I'm, I'm sad. I have a legitimate reason to drink. Yeah. My wife just kicked me out. Mm -hmm. So I go to the bar. This is less than 24 hours later. I drink. I get drunk. As I'm leaving the bar, I rear end somebody at a red light. And I get out of my truck, and the guy had a tow hitch on the back of his truck. So his truck was actually okay. But now my front bumper's V'd in, like, mm. really bad. And um, I said, hey, uh, are you okay? And he says, I'm fine. I said, your truck's okay. You're okay. I'm out of here. And I slapped him on his back, and I jumped in my truck, and I took off. I knew I was going to go to jail. My truck was going to get impounded. I was completely drunk. Yeah. I get back to my buddy's house and I say, Hey man, I, I can't stay here. I have to go be by myself and figure this out. I don't know what I'm going to do. So I leave, stop at the liquor store and get 10 more miniatures. 
and I go and park my truck at a parking ride where people park their vehicles and jump on the train for the day and go to work and then come yeah. back. Mm-hmm. And um, I park my truck and I turn my phone off and I turn the radio on. And for the next 48 hours, I sit there and drink and pass out and drink and pass out and listen to sad music and put myself through the whole woe is me. I'm a piece of crap. You know, my, my kids are better off without me. My wife's better off without me. My friends, my mom, why can't I hold a job? Why am I such a piece of crap? Like I, I'm just coming down on myself for 48 hours and drinking myself to passing out. And finally on March 5th, 2021, after two days of having my phone off, I turned my phone on at seven after 10 in the morning. Two minutes later, at nine after 10, after having my phone completely off for, for two days, the phone rings. And I pick it up, and it's my childhood friend, Brandon Novak. And excuse my French, but he's like, Lodgin, what the fuck are you doing? And I said, man, I'm, I'm cold, I'm hungry, I'm tired, and I'm drunk. And he says, good, that's what you need. I just got off the phone with your mother and your wife. I have a plane ticket waiting for you this evening. I want you to go down to Banyan Treatment Centers in West Palm Beach, Florida, and I want you to go get help. He says, just please do me a favor. Call me when you pass security because I want to make sure you're getting on the plane and you're not going to catch a cab and you're going to leave the airport. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, okay, okay, man, I'll do it. I'll do it. I'll do it. And I hang up the phone. 10 minutes goes by and my wife calls and she's like, Tim, um, I just got off the phone with Brandon. Can you please come home and uh, take a shower, pack your bags, maybe get some sleep. Cause I had about four to five hours before the plane left. She's like, I can try to eat something. Yeah. And I said, okay, I'll come home. And I got home and I take a shower and I pack my bags. I couldn't eat and I couldn't sleep. Now uh, I'm in full panic mode. I'm having anxiety. My mind's racing. Oh my God. How did I get, this bad that I have to go to rehab. How long do I have to go to rehab for? Is it 30? Is it 60 days? Is it 90? Is it six months? Like, how did I get my life to this bad of a mess that I have to go to rehab to, to set myself straight? And yeah. I'm, I'm sitting in my bedroom and uh, my addictive personality grabs me by the hand and walks me down to the basement of my home. And tells me to put a rope around my neck and stand on a bucket and end the pain. And I walk down to the basement of my home and I put a rope around my neck and I stand on a bucket. And about two minutes goes by and my wife realizes I'm not in the bedroom anymore. And she comes down to the basement and I'm in the corner of the basement in the dark. And she sees me standing there crying hysterically with a rope around my neck. And she says, what are you doing? And I said, I can't do it. I I can't. I just want the pain to stop. I can't stop drinking. I can't stop being an addict. I don't know what else to do. And she looks at me and she says, Tim, do you know what this would do to your girls? Please, please get down. Get on that plane. Everything is going to be okay. Just please get down. And uh, I stood there for about a minute. I get down. I fall to the floor and I'm crying. And I go upstairs and I pick up my phone 
and I called my friend. I said, hey, uh, I got to go, man. If I don't go tonight, my mental illness and my addiction is going to kill me. And I can't do that to my girls. I got to go. Yeah. And all, and all he says is, I'm proud of you. I love you. Call me when you pass security. So uh, hours goes by. And my mom comes, picks me up, and takes me to the airport. I get past security, and I call my friend. I'm like, hey, I'm, I got about 35 minutes for the plane leaves. I just want you to know I'm getting on the plane. I'm past security. And all he says is, I'm proud of you. I love you. You're about to get back everything you've lost times 10. And he hangs up the phone. As he hangs up the phone, and I go to sit down in the chair waiting for them to call my boarding pass, as I sit down in the chair in the airport, this overwhelming feeling of hope came over my entire body. It was a warm blanket feeling that I've never felt in my entire life. My worry went away. My depression, my panic attack, my anxieties went away. And this voice that I've never heard in my entire life, like a warm, motherly, calming voice, says to me, everything's going to be okay. And it was at that moment in my life that I realized at 44 years old, after 27 years of mental illness and addiction, that I was finally going to get the help that I needed to save my life. It was at that moment that I realized that I just had a, a spiritual awakening. I cannot explain the feeling that came over my body. I cannot explain that voice that I've never heard before come into my head and say those words in such a calming, caring, giving way. When I got to rehab, I was 100% into whatever I had to do mentally, spiritually, and physically to change my life. The second day I was there, the doctors took all my vitals and my blood pressure and checked all my organs. And the doctor looks at me and says, your blood pressure is 167 over 145. You're on the verge of having a stroke. Your kidneys and your liver are four times what they should be. If you were to continue to drink like this for the next year, you would not make it to your 47th birthday. You came at the exact time you needed to, to be able to reverse the damage to your organs and get your blood pressure back to normal. He said, I, I don't know how you got here or why you came here at this time. He said, but if you would have waited another month, the damage that you would have done to your body would have ultimately killed you in the next year or two. Mm. That was one of the other moments that I realized that there's no coincidences in life. Things happen for you when they're supposed to happen. Yeah. And I, and I started to believe that, well, I'm, I'm not alone. And what I went through for 27 years didn't happen to me. It happened for me. It happened for me to realize how precious this gift of life that we have is. How grateful that we are to just wake up in the morning and have another day alive with our friends and our family to be, have the opportunity to chase the dreams that we've always wanted as a small child. I used to take everything for granted, every single thing. 
I was the glass half empty guy. Where's the rest of it? Why isn't it over the top of the glass and brewing and falling over? Yeah. Now I'm just so thankful that there's something in the glass, something that I can make out of it, something that I can contribute to society, to this world. And I found my purpose in life, and that is to share my story with truth and authenticity, to let people know that if they're out there suffering with mental illness and addiction, do not be ashamed. Do not think that your pain is yours alone and nobody could possibly understand what you're going through because that is so far from the truth. We need to share our stories in hopes and helping other people to know that they are not alone, that they can recover, and they can live the life that they've always dreamed of. Tim, I'm I'm speechless. I am I'm moved. You know, me suffering f- um, from mental illness myself. It's it's very. I I completely understand that part of it. Anyway, you know of, of what you must have felt, what you must have, you know, had to endure alone because. Uh, the problem is is that you do feel alone during these kinds of moments whenever you're going through those dark 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 moments it doesn't feel like there's going to be any light at all at any point and you know to hear you it's so hopeful and it's so encouraging to tell people like you know could be, be me saying this because whenever you're in those moments you really do think you know this is it this is this is going to be the moment where you know I'm just, this is my last day. This is my last month. Uh, you know, it's easier to give up than to have hope. And yes. Tim, I applaud you. And I thank you for giving us that light to give ourselves a second chance. Because the the hardest thing to do, and you can correct me on this if I'm wrong. The hardest thing to do with these kind of situations is to just keep, you know, producing hope. Keep producing hope. It's so hard especially like me, for example, I, I, I never had that problem. Yeah. You know, there's drinking, you know, sometimes in here and there, but that's not the same thing. So I cannot understand, but there's people that are listening right now that completely understand and could possibly be feeling how you felt 13, 14 months ago or, or however long ago it's been since you stopped. And, um, whenever you, if I can ask you, whenever you were and you know, how long were you in rehab for? Um, I did. I was in there for 32 days. 32 days. Okay. Did you lose hope when you weren't in there? No. When when that experience happened to me in that airport, yeah. I had a mindset change, a shift in my thinking. When I got to rehab, I went in with both arms open, with my mind fully open to anything that I needed to do to change my life mentally, spiritually, and physically. I didn't miss any meetings. I went to extra meetings for veterans and first responders. I started working out with a personal trainer Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. I changed my diet. I started believing in a higher power. I don't know if if you want to call it Jesus or Allah or Buddha, but I believe that there's something else out there when I didn't have faith. I I didn't believe if anything was possibly out there that why would people be suffering? Yeah. I was lost. But now I truly believe there's there's got to be something that that definitely helps me is I have faith in something other than myself, because 
I don't think I could have gotten sober and lived in recovery if it didn't come from someplace else. Mm. I mean, I'm a, I, I'm a warrior. I, I'm a strong person. I never, I never would give up in sports and, you know, and if you challenge me at something, I always try to beat you. You know, I, 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 that's my personality. But when that mental illness and addiction took, took, took me over, it brought me to my knees and I was hopeless and faithless and it tried to kill me. And when you're in that mindset and you're in that deep, dark place, you start to listen to the negative thoughts in your head and they consume you. They consume every thought that you have in your head and they ultimately talk you into doing it. I believe I was intervened and um, that's the only way I can explain it is I'm here for a reason. Yeah. I'm here. I'm here for a purpose. And if you are watching this and you feel alone and you have lost hope and you are in that dark and you're sitting in the dark and you cannot find your way out of it, I will come and sit with you in the dark and we will both find the light together. Do not give up hope. As long as you have hope, everything is going to be all right. Let me ask you that you said you were there for 32 days. Yes. On that 32nd day when you had to leave or I'm because I'm assuming you were in a building. Is that correct? Yeah, I was in a facility. Yeah, okay. 200, 250 of us there. Yes. Whenever you were on that 32nd day and you had to leave, how were you feeling or what was going through your mind when you were leaving the building and facing the world, facing reality? I had I did have a little bit of anxiety, um, positive and negative. Positive because I wanted to see my wife and my and my three girls again. I was missing my family. I wanted to hug them as a sober husband and father. Yeah, I wanted them to see how much I had transformed. I had, I lost twenty five pounds in rehab. You know, it was all alcohol weight, and my my skin was red. I looked so much healthier. I wanted them to see a healthy father and a healthy husband. And I wanted my mom to see a healthy son whom she hadn't seen since I was the age of 18. And my mom's 70 some years old. That was one of the biggest things I really, I wanted my mom to know that her son was okay. On the, on the other hand, I had anxiety of man where I live two blocks away or three bars and two liquor stores. Mm-hmm. Like it literally I can, I can look across my street and go over a red light and there's a bar and across the streets, a liquor store. Yeah. How am, how am I going to um, push that urge away? But I will tell you something that's truly amazing. I have not once craved thought or wanted to drink alcohol or put drugs in my system since that day at the airport happened to me. I believe that the addiction was lifted from my body. And as long as I continue to believe that I'll never have to worry about putting alcohol or drugs in my system again. Yeah. You know, the mind is a very, very powerful thing. Mm -hmm. What you, what you believe in is what you can achieve in. So no matter what it is, whether it's drugs or alcohol or um, getting a new, changing your jobs or getting in shape or whatever it is. If you change your mindset at all costs, 
you will make that happen. Nothing can stop you, and the sky's the limit. Hmm. That was very um. That was heartfelt. That was heartfelt. Um. I'm asking this. Uh, do you regret any of anything that you've been through? I did it first. Um, I, I did. I, I regretted putting my family through the hell that I put them through. Mm-hmm. You know, um, in my drinking and drugging days, I'd come home and and my house would scatter, and like like cockroaches with the lights coming on. I'd come and I'd walk in the front door, and within five minutes, everybody would be in their rooms with the doors locked. And during my addiction, I was like, great. Nobody's going to bother me. I can sit here and drink and, mm-hmm. and play a video game or watch whatever the hell I want. I ain't got to worry about nothing. It didn't dawn on me until I started getting sober that my kids were scared of me. My wife didn't know what husband was walking in the front door. Now, thank God I was never physically abusive to my family, yeah. but I sure as hell was verbally abusive. I said some nasty shit to the people that I love the most and words last and hurt longer mm-hmm. than a phys- than a physical abuse. So yeah. I did regret a lot of that. But in order for me to get over that, in order for me to embrace what I have went through, I have to understand that that was just part of my journey. And in order for me to be a kind, caring, grateful person, I had to understand that at one point in my life, I was a monster. And that I never want to be that person again. So that drives me even more and, and keeps me focused more to becoming this person that I've always wanted to be. So you, in order to get a good, you do have to have a bad. And if you dwell on the bad too too long, it's going to start taking away from all the good that you've done. So I have learned to let it go. I have learned to let things off of my shoulder. The past is the past. It's time for me to focus on the future. And and turn that page in my book and start a brand new chapter in my life. And this is going to be the best chapter that I've ever had in my life. That's awesome. Um, I want people to see, if, if I could put it this way, a before and an after. Explain to them how your day goes now. Because you explained how your days went back then where, you know, time wasn't just there. You know, it, it's a lot of lost time. But now that you're you're healed and you're in a better mental state, you know, and, and you're in a better position. How does your day look like now? My day starts off with uh, taking my bipolar medicine, which I never wanted to do before. But now I know that just like if you have a heart issue or high blood pressure or if you have cancer or if you have something going on and you have to take your medicine to yeah. help your health, I take that first thing in the morning. It's the first thing I do. I go to work every single day. I don't call out. I'm present at work. I'm productive at work. I'm grateful to have a job. So when I get there, I'm not dragging my feet. I'm full on engulfed in my job. I'm a carpenter. So when I go to work, I produce. Mm -hmm. I make things look pretty. I finish the job and I move on to the next one. And I'm grateful that I have that job. As soon as I'm done work, I come home. I immediately shower, change, and I go right to the gym. Physical exercise has helped my emotional state so much. Um, Self-confidence, my endorphins, my dopamine, just the way that I look at myself in the mirror. 
I'm proud of the progress that I've made over 17 months. Mm. If you've looked at my page, I have before and after pictures of how I looked. It is a complete transformation from my addictive days to where I am now. Yeah. I'm, I'm currently training for my first bodybuilding show in November. So I'm completely committed to a new life. So I go to the gym and then when I'm done the gym, I come home. I have a beautiful dinner with my family who wants to be around me, who wants to watch movies with their dad or joke around or go to the pool. We belong to a community pool that we go to and spend time together. Um, I actually have a uh, three-year-old grandson and a two-month-old grandson now that my oldest daughter, who's 23, just mm -hmm. had two months ago. So mm -hmm. I have these two beautiful little boys that... <laughs> if God willing, will never see their pop-up ever pick up a drug or a drink. Yeah. And I can, and I can show them how to be a man. I can be that father figure that I never had growing up. And that right there gives me the motivation to continue to do what I do. And before I go to bed, I pray and I don't pray for things for me. I pray for, other people to help them with their with their ailments or help them get through the tough times that they're going through i i i thank god or i thank a higher power to giving me another day on this earth giving me another day of sobriety giving me a second chance to be a better father husband uh son and friend and then i ask for him to help me reach as many people as possible who are suffering with mental illness and addiction so that they know that they're not alone and they can recover and live a life that he has always had waiting for you. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, I I thank you so, so very much for not only being courageous, but, you know, doing this for, for our audience that, you know, we people don't like to talk about the nasty stuff sometimes, you know, the, the, the painful days. And, and I, again, I say thank you for, for being able to be vulnerable enough to do that and to share that, that part of you. And, and, and just so people can understand and kind of not learn to say from your mistakes, but to learn, you know, about people around them, because there's a lot of people that do have this problem still, you know, and, and we need to be more understanding and more, you know, loving to those around us that may have not found that light yet, if that makes sense. Absolutely. No. And, and, and don't be ashamed if you're going through anything, reach out to some, a loved one, a friend, a mentor, or somebody at work. Don't be ashamed of your feelings and what's going on. The more you share, the more feedback you can get that could ultimately help you through whatever you're going through, no matter what it is. And I think that's, a, a, like you said, I think in the beginning, it's a huge stigma where people don't want to talk about their feelings. Yeah. They, they want to bottle it up. They, nobody knows. I don't want to share. You know, I don't want to bother somebody with my problems. Yeah, yeah. I'd rather you bother me with your problems than me have to go to your funeral and look over your dead body because you didn't want to bother me with your problems. Yeah. Bo bother me with your problems. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, let me ask you this question: Didn't didn't has anybody been nasty to you ever since your recovery? Has anybody had been negative to you towards you? And no. if so, how would you handle that? You haven't. Um, I have not had any negative feedback. As a matter of fact, I have 
had the most positive feedback I have ever had in my entire 46 years of being alive. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, I started Instagram like a month after I got out of rehab and here I am 17 months later and I just hit 101,000 followers mm -hmm. and it's all due to posting my podcast, positive messages, showing my transformation and giving back good to the world if you're going to hate on somebody who's spreading positively and goodwill to mm -hmm. everything, then it's you're the one that has the problem, yeah. not me. And if you ever need to talk to me about what's going on and why your heart is filled with hate, I would love to understand what is going on in your life where seeing somebody do something positive makes you upset because we need to talk. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, let me ask you this one question. Um, has anybody, specifically your family, your wife or your children, have they said something to you that kind of give you another click of like, man, I am in a different state, like that has brought you to tears maybe, uh, or, or something that it just kind of clicked again? Does that make sense? Does my question make yeah, sense? Yeah, no, it, it, it does, and it happens all the time. So, the biggest one would be my oldest daughter because she's 23 and she's, she's seen the most. My other daughter's 14 and my youngest is 11. The, the younger two bounce back fairly quickly because, um, you know, they all live here at the house. Okay. But when I first got back from rehab, my oldest daughter was still living here as well. And she would walk right in the door, wouldn't look at me, wouldn't say nothing to me and walk right upstairs to her bedroom and shut the door. Mm -hmm. And, I look at my wife and be like, why isn't she talking to me? I just went to rehab. I, you know, I, I'm not drinking anymore. I'm not using drugs. And my wife would simply say, Tim, you drank and drugged her entire life. You've just been home for 32 days. Give it time. She's got to see you put in the work. A actions speak louder than words. Just give it time. And yeah. another month would go by. Another month would go by. Finally, on the ninth month of my sobriety, nine months in, I get a text message out of nowhere, and it's my oldest daughter. And she says, Dad, I just want you to know how proud I am of you. I haven't been able to share that with you because I know you were healing, and I appreciate you giving me time to heal. But I want you to know that I love you, and I'm proud to have my dad back. That was one of the most amazing gifts I have received in sobriety. And she texts me randomly now. She's moved out in the last four or five months, but she'll text me on a weekly basis. Dad, I see what you're doing on Instagram. I see another podcast you were on. I think what you're doing is amazing. I'm so proud of you, and I love you, and I'm glad that we have a relationship again. It used to make me so sad when I saw other girls with their dads having a relationship and you and I didn't have one. And I'm so grateful that you're sober and my boys can grow up with a pop pop like you, man, no amount of money can put anything on that feeling right yeah. there. That makes me so proud. My middle daughter thinks I'm so cool. Cause I have so many followers on, on Instagram. She thinks that's so cool. And my youngest daughter you know, my youngest daughter just she she loves watching movies with me and hanging out and we joke and giggle and play and we never did that before. I would just come home and always be drunk and just want to be by myself and 
be agitated and irritated. And now I'm a compassionate, loving father and husband to my wife. Now my, my wife, she, you know, we were at a, a cookout a couple months ago and, and one of our lifelong friends was like, how's things going? You know, you know, how's your relationship? And my wife said, he's a different man. She's like, I can't get him to argue for nothing. She's like, I could sit there and yell at him for two to three minutes. And he just says, okay, yeah, how are we going to solve this? What are we going to do? She's like, it's, she's like, it's like talking to a Buddha. She's like, he just tries to solve the, solve the problems. He doesn't get upset. He just calmly tells me, okay, well, what's the solution? She said, and there's no turmoil in the house. There's no anxiety when I walk in the front door because I don't have to worry about who I'm walking into. She said, the house is so peaceful. And she said, our house is now a home again. And it's those type of things, man. It, it, it makes me grateful yeah. that I was a, able to get the help that I needed because what I've gotten back in sobriety hasn't been 10 times fold. It's been like a hundred and it keeps on giving and giving yeah. and giving. It's beautiful. It is. And I, uh, Tim, I'm, 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 speeches clearly as you can tell i'm i'm just very very grateful for you there's a lot more than i want to say but i'm just gonna leave it at that but uh one last question for you tim if there's somebody that's listening right now and they're at their lowest they are uh at that moment where they really do think this is you know this is my final day here and I know you kind of mentioned in a, a little bit ago, you know, what you would say, but to kind of rephrase to them listening, what would you say? You can't give up hope. You can't. I did on two occasions and it nearly took me my life. You would be killing the wrong person because the person you'd be killing would not be the person that you could become. The sadness that you're feeling is a phase. Every rose only grows without a storm before, without the rain. A diamond only forms after it's formed under pressure. There's always going to be ups and downs in life. There's always going to be phases. It's like, it's like the waves crashing on the ocean. Sometimes it's calm. Sometimes it's furious. But that wave keeps coming in and going back and coming in. Trust the process. Don't beat yourself up. Don't feel ashamed. Ask for help. Don't be silent. That is, do not be silent. Tell someone your feelings. You have got to share your thoughts and feelings with somebody else, especially if you're thinking about taking your own life or ending your life or hurting somebody else. That is not you. That is not you. That's coming from a deep, dark place that you can come out of. And like I said before, if you are in that deep, dark place and you have nobody to talk to, message me on Instagram. I will come and sit with you in that dark and you and I together will find that light. I will help you as much as I can get you to the resources that you need, get you to the people that you need to speak to. I will give you that ear that just needs to listen if that's all you need. You are not alone. Don't ever think you are and don't ever think that nobody cares. You are so loved and cared upon. And the last thing I will say is 
the probability that you were born is one in 400 trillion. That's the odds. The fact that you're alive is a living miracle. You are completely unique to this world and everyone has something special inside to offer. You can do it and go be exceptional. I've, I've been silent a lot of this podcast, which I'm, it's rare for me because I talk a lot. <laughs> but but you have taken me to a place and and for that i, I want to say thank you and and tim you're golden you're you're gold oh. and and i i love you for for being yourself and for being you know sharing this this story that literally is saving lives so oh, thank you i i i'm humbled to hear that thank you yeah, yeah, no, no, no. Thank you, thank you. And uh, before we conclude, let me ask you some questions on our um, <clears throat> fire round questions. Um, if you could describe yourself in three words, what would, what would the three words be? Compassionate, loving, and fierce. Those are three words that fit perfectly, sir. Perfectly. Um. I feel like we probably already kind of hit this a little bit, but what advice would you give your younger self? Not to beat yourself up so much that uh, trust the process in life and don't let your ego write a check that your ass can't cash because I've done that plenty of times. (laughs) (laughs) Man. Okay, let's see. Summer or winter for you? Man, that's a hard one. Um, I love going to the pool and getting my sun, but I love the change of the season. I love snow at Christmas time, and, and man, that is a really hard one. Um, I'd have to go with summer only because I can do more things outside with my kids. Gotcha, gotcha. Because you, you said you're in Maryland. How does that look during the summer and winter? Right now it's ninety four, and I think the humidity's oh, got it over 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 like one hundred and five today. So it's hot outside today. Oh snap! Okay, okay. Because yeah. I just I just pictured you know over there. So I'm like, oh, it's probably gonna be. I don't know why I imagine it cold all the time. But so it's like, ah, oh, Maryland. I don't know what that's like. During the summer, it can be really brutal, and during the winter, it gets very cold. Because I'm I'm literally twenty minutes from water, mm. so the hot is really hot, and the cold comes off the gotcha. water and it gets really cold yeah gotcha 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 okay uh let's see what is your best feature my best feature the ability to look into somebody's eyes and, and truly see what's going on now i have clarity clarity would be it i can see what's going on now where before i was blinded by the drugs and alcohol yeah I can see a lot more clear now and um, I can help more people by doing so. Sweet. Awesome. My, my wife, my wife might say my abs, but I don't know. <laughs> yeah, probably <laughs> actually. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Let's see. Um, well, I think you just answered this one actually. So let me skip that one. Uh, do you think crying is a sign of weakness or strength? Crying means you're brave. It means you're courageous. Um, Crying is no way, shape, or form a a sign of weakness or or illness or shamefulness. The strongest men cry. And do not think, don't take that stereotype. 
Because a lot of men, they were told when they're growing up as young boys, you mm-hmm. can't cry, you're a man, pick yeah. your head up, you know, dust, your, dust your knees off, it's only a scratch, don't let people see you cry. Yeah. Bullshit, bullshit. Yeah, no, for sure, for sure, for sure. Uh, let's go back a little bit. When you were a kid, what was your favorite cartoon growing up? My favorite cartoon growing up was actually Mighty Mouse. No way! Yeah, the original Mighty Mouse. I always loved somebody so small, but yet so powerful. Mm-hmm. And um, I kind of like was I kind of was like that growing up. I graduated high school like 140 pounds, but. Nobody messed with me because I was a Golden Glove and Junior Olympic boxer. Yeah, I, I you know what I mean, and I've always had that. I just like I like the underdog who always prevails out on top. Mm-hmm. I love to see that. Yeah, those are always the best stories, aren't they? I love it. Yeah, uh, let's see. Uh, if you were to name a song that is the song of your life, what song would that be? I really like. Uh, Dear Alcohol um, by Dax, D-A-X. It it explains the last 20 years of my life of how alcohol controlled me and finally had the courage to break up with it and how beautiful life is now. Um, My second choice would be Save Me by Jelly Roll. And that's along the same lines of, of dealing with mental illness and addiction and how you were able to overcome it and live a much, much more purposeful, beautiful life. Yeah. Yeah. I have to listen to those. Um, let's see here. Um, I feel like I know the answer to this one, but I'm going to ask you anyway. If you had a friend who spoke to you the same way you sometimes speak to yourself, how long would you allow this person to be your friend? Now, is this me speaking to myself as an alcoholic or me speaking to myself as a recovery person? Let's do part A and B. Let's see. Uh, for okay. Each. Uh, as an alcoholic, I would have punched him in his face and knocked his teeth out of his mouth because that's how I was—a very aggressive, violent person. Yeah. And if you talk to me that way, I'd put you straight in your place. If somebody talks to me now the way that I speak to people, it would probably make me cry and probably make me realize how important of a person I am. Is to everybody in this world and how much I have to give back. Um, I'm a completely different human being. Yeah. The way that I look at things now, I would rather make you feel more important than myself because I truly believe giving back more to people. Yeah. 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 Is is truly what we need to be doing. We need to help each other more than put each other down more. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, for sure. Especially with you know everything that we're going through, just in our personal lives, but in the world, you know, I feel like there's more putting down than lifting. You know, other people up. It's like everybody's at each other's throats with everything: politics, sexuality, skin color, race, creed. We're all human beings on this planet if we can all just stand together and help each other what a more beautiful place this place will be yeah no for sure for sure for sure uh let's see um what's the one thing you'd like others to remember about you at the end of your life that i gave back that i made a difference in at least one person's life when I was drinking, I could care less about anybody else. 
Now I just want somebody to one day listen to a podcast or, or listen to one of the sentences I may have written down and put on, on my page that it could help them to inspire them to maybe help another person and yeah. to help another person. I would really love to be known as the person that helped give hope back into people's hearts. Yeah. Well, let me crown you with that because trust me, just this episode alone, because you said you've done other shows and you have your own podcast. I heard, right? Is that correct? Well, I don't do my own podcast yet. Um, I, I just okay. go on other people's. Today is my 49th podcast. You are my 49th podcast Ooh. this year. Okay. Well, thank you. Yeah, 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 that's doing that's doing the Lord's work right there for real. Okay, uh, let's see. Last question: What do you imagine yourself doing ten years from now? Now I would. Uh, I so this is a, a weird question for me. I want to focus on now. Now. Because I realized when you focus on the future, it brings anxiety and depression into your life. Mm -hmm. Because you're, fo you're focusing on something that you cannot control. And you're putting things before the events that need to take place to make that happen. On the other hand, in 10 years, I would love to be helping mental illness or addiction like 5013C um, nonprofit organizations help people get into rehab or help people get sponsors. Um, I, I'm, I've been talking to life coaches and fitness coaches about helping people mentally and physically get their lives back in order to change their mindset. So I would love to be somewhere along that lines of, of speaking to people who need the help that they need physically, mentally, spiritually, financially, helping them get their lives back on track. Um, I've been approached to possibly be doing some TEDx speaking. So I'm talking to some people about doing that. So I really want to oh, get out there and spread my message to as many people as possible. Yeah. So if, if within 10 years I could be out there and have my videos out there of me sharing hope and giving inspiration to people, man, what a what a, an amazing turnaround from where I was to be able to sit back and look at the progress that I've done and, and yeah. the uh, accomplishments i've been able to do yeah 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 well you know tim i'm in it for the ride i want to see where you go and how far you will make a difference in this world because you've done it so far and and I, I just can't wait to see you know the lives that you're going to change and the the better voice that you're going to get because right now you know you're speaking out of your experience, but I feel like you're going to come across people and, you know, I, especially in, in episodes like these, you know, the people are going to listen. You're going to come across people that are going to teach you something more. Cause I feel like you're, you're more of a, you, your mind is like absorbing all of this. So I feel like, you know, you're teachable. You know, I, I just can't wait to see. I'm hearing you talk and, this is weird to me because I'm I'm never lost for words. I swear to you, I'm never lost for words. <laughs> but I'm hearing you, and I'm I'm just I'm getting so inspired. So I cannot wait. I just cannot wait to see, you know, how else you're going to change the world. So um, I'm going to keep, you know, I'm going to keep. Please keep, you know, just give me updates just to where you're going to go oh, and and absolutely, and, yeah. 
And, and when this airs and, and you put it out, I'm, I'm going to put it on my page and I'll, I'll promote you and and tag you and send people to your podcast and show you some love back. Yeah, no, man. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for that. And uh, Tim Lodgins, I cannot say thank you enough. I, I, I cannot. I'm grateful for you. And I'm super blessed that we came across each other and we're learning from each other. Um, so I thank you for that. And to anybody that's listening, I'm going to uh, go ahead and tag him when this episode airs on our uh, podcast page. So if you want to keep updates with him, you know, go ahead and follow him. Um, hit him up if you do have uh, personal questions that, you know, you just that I may not be able to understand. And I couldn't ask you on this podcast. But, hey, reach out to him. And, you know, and I'm pretty sure he's more than willing to to sit with you in the dark and, and get you to that place. Absolutely. 100%. My messages are completely open and I will message you back personally and we'll figure out what's going on and I'll help you as best as I can. Yeah. Yeah. So thank you again. Thank you so much. And listeners, thank you for listening to another episode. And until the next time, thank you so much, Tim. You're welcome. Thank you for having me, Tony. Have a good one. You too. Bye.